we're actually right on the eastern edge of the Tug Hill Plateau. When I say plateau, literally you can get to the top of our hill and it's basically flat all the way to to Lake Ontario. And that cold air that comes across the lake generates a lake effect band that it either hits or it doesn't. We can get two feet of snow here and literally 15 minutes down the road, they could have gotten a dusting. When the band hits, it is absolutely outrageous. When I experienced our first lake effect storm, I was like, what is happening? We couldn't see anything. It was just dumping harder than I've ever seen before. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester, back to my home state of New York today. First, your reminder to please subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. I am breaking down the world of lift-served skiing all year long. I do not take the summer off. As I told you before, I am not a podcaster with a newsletter. I am a writer with a podcast. That's an important distinction. The newsletter is the heart of the storm. I am also on Twitter or Instagram at Storm Ski Journal, where you'll get more breaking news and more frequent updates. Okay, my partners, first up, Spot. Let's face it, if you're a skier, you run the risk of getting hurt. And what's worse than wiping out? Massive ER bills, not to mention less time on the slopes. That's why Spot partners with some of the biggest names in the ski industry, like Icon Pass, Telluride, Taos, and more to offer custom injury coverage with lift tickets and season passes. Spot easily plugs into your checkout flow and does all the heavy lifting to ensure your skiers are covered. If your guests get hurt, a Spot policy can pay up to $25,000 of their out-of-pocket medical bills per incident with zero deductible. When your skiers are safe from massive medical costs, they spend more time on the mountain without the fear of an injury holding them back. And that's peace of mind they won't find anywhere else. So visit stormskiing.getspot.com to partner with Spot and show your community that you have their back when things go sideways. To all skiers, make sure your mountain has Spot so you're not blindsided by medical bills if you wipe out, because that's painful enough. Learn more at stormskiing.getspot.com. That's stormskiing.getspot.com. And of course, I am still proud to partner with Mountain Gazette. Issue 196 is just incredible. Photo galleries exploring the Washington Cascades, how skiing, and my hometown, New York City. Essays on snowboarding is zen, Alaskan expeditions, and Mammoth Mountain founder Dave McCoy. There's even a little crash course on the amazing and mysterious coyote. And of course, a moving look at skiing in Afghanistan before the country fell to the Taliban. But hey, don't just listen to me. Listen to my man at Isaac underscore Gardner on Twitter. Here's what he said upon receiving his issue. Quote, I had heard the hype from at Storm Ski Journal, but this is more beautiful and even more appealing than I had imagined. Thanks at Skiing Rogi. Thanks so very much. I need this this season and for many more. And quote, don't miss the next one. Subscribe now. Enter code GOHIRE-10, all one word, for 10% off subscriptions over at mountaingazette.com. This code is only valid for listeners of the storm. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, 
go higher. Episode 80, Snow Ridge, New York, co-owner and general manager, Nick Murr. All right, Western folk, listen up, because I need to break this down for you. Yes, we know you think the Northeast is an ice farm. Yes, we know you're too cool to ski here. But let me tell you this. If you ever do find yourself in the Northeast in the winter, you need to angle yourself toward one of two places. The first one you probably know about, the Green Mountain Spine in northern Vermont. Sugarbush, Mad River Glen, Bolton Valley, Stowe, Smuggler's Notch, Jay Peak. They get about double the snowfall as most of the rest of the region, and they're big, burly mountains with great terrain and two to 3,000 foot vertical drops. But there's another spot that's more off the radar, the Lake Effect Snowbelt off Lake Ontario in northern New York. They get absolutely socked with storms all winter long. The reason you've never heard of it, the mountains are small. Snow Ridge only runs about 500 feet of vert. Macaulay, another little spot nearby in the same region, runs a bit over 600. But both places have some sick terrain, and you are going to want to hit them both if you're anywhere near there when conditions hit right. All right, let's get right into this one. Snow Ridge, here we come. Let's go. My guest today has been the co-owner and general manager of Snow Ridge, New York, since 2015. Snow Ridge has 31 trails and five lifts on a 500-foot vertical drop. The ski area averages 230 inches of snowfall per season. Nick Murr is my guest. Nick, thank you so much for joining us. It is so great to have you on the storm. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Stuart. Happy to be here. So first of all, Nick, how was your season at Snow Ridge? You wrapped up this weekend. How did it go? Yeah, uh, pretty weird season uh, weather-wise, <laughs> but uh, not terrible. You know, we, we finished the season pretty uh, significantly under our, our 230-inch average there. We had about 160 inches this year. Uh, but it skied uh, really well all season. Um, got a little bit of a late start right after Christmas. Um, just, just closed off this past weekend. But so all in all, we had a lot of great days. Uh, snow was, you know, really good all year, and we were able to uh, to make it through pretty nice. So, not a lot of freeze thaws this year. Once it once the snow fell, it stayed cold. We did we did have those couple uh, warm ups uh, with some rain and stuff like that. But after each one, we had a pretty significant snowstorm, so it it kind of worked out every time. Um, really had no bad days, which was nice. So, third weekend in March seems to be your sweet spot at Snow Ridge. Is that deliberate? Or are you just done at that point? Or if you have more snow, do you have the intention of trying to push the season later? Or does this date just work for you? Yeah, no, that's uh, it's basically all snow um, snow related. If we had uh, if we had the snow and the base to keep going, I would probably stay open a, a couple more weeks. Uh, once you get into April, you're really only talking about your diehards who are coming out anymore. Uh, so, as far as you know, actually, you know, making money and be able to. Uh, operate that way, it gets a little bit more difficult. But uh, I, have, I would have no problem. We've we've stayed open into April a couple times in the last uh, you know seven years that we've been here. Um, it's all just kind of weather uh, related and, and snow related. So the mainstream operation is closed for the season, but you do have one last hurrah left. Tell us about what you have coming up this weekend. Yeah, so we started our uh, postseason rail jam last year. Um, had a great great turnout. Um, basically, what we do is we we make a one day only train park down here in our learning area that uh, is now serviced by a new carpet lift that we put in last year. And uh, yeah, basically, you know, guys and girls come out and uh, you know ride for five hours. Uh, we have a great time. We have a bunch of prizes that we throw out. 
and uh, stuff like that. And it's, it's, it's just a really great uh, addition to our event schedule. So we're bringing it back this year and uh, we're excited to get uh, to see everyone this Saturday. So that rail jam scene, it's, I'll admit I'm, I'm pretty unfamiliar with it, but it seems to be growing in New York. Just kind of break this down for us, Nick. What is a rail jam? What, what does that mean? And, and why are we seeing these events grow in popularity? Sure. Yeah. It's, um, it's kind of, it's, I've seen kind of a, a cyclical, uh, you know, popularity to the whole train park scene in the state. Um, I grew up um, designing train parks down at Tigerberg, and it was it was really a big thing back then. This was in the early 2000s, um, and then it kind of went away for, I don't know, five, ten years, and it's kind of making a, a reemergence, which is pretty cool to see. Uh, but basically, the rail jam is, you know, you're, you're taking the rails, um, the boxes and rails from your train parks, um, and you're setting up in a, in a special way to basically have a competition on them. And um, the way we kind of run ours is not necessarily a competition, but more just a fun session with everyone getting together and listening to music and, and riding together and having a good time. So, um, yeah, they can be structured a bunch of different ways, but um, it's definitely definitely great to see the scene kind of coming back and, and seeing the kids getting back into it. Um, it all really depends on how many resorts are, are committing some of their finances and their, their time to these parks if there aren't the parks to ride. Um, if there aren't any good, then uh, kids aren't going to do it. So um, I think that's kind of coming back a little bit and, and people are getting back into it. Do you jump on the rails yourself, Nick? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely. I've, I've been on in, uh, in age now, so I <laughs> took <don't> do <laughs> stuff like you know, Recovery time's a little longer than it used to be, but uh, I definitely get <laughs> on them every now and then. So, you know, if you, if you look back a couple decades, terrain parks – Really, there's a pretty good argument to be made that they saved small ski areas because it really infuses a lot of energy into these places that may not have the massive terrain and uh, the huge fancy lifts that some of the bigger places have. However, Snow Ridge does have some natural advantages. A, you have all that snow that comes off lake uh, off the lake, and we'll talk about that. Uh, you also have really good fall line skiing and really good terrain. It's only 500 vertical feet, but it skis really big. It's a really nice piece of terrain. Uh, but nonetheless, you're a parks guy, and and it seems like you're emphasizing this. Just talk a little bit about that parks culture and and how important that is to Snow Ridge and how much how important you want it to be to Snow Ridge's future. For sure, yeah, it's um, yeah, it's definitely an important uh, part of our business model, um, and I think a lot of areas kind of overlook them because they do cost money, and it's hard to to measure that that um, return on your investment because there's no real concrete you know thing to look at saying, oh yeah, we we built this park and and now we have all these people here. Um, but something I've learned from the beginning is basically, you know, the majority of the people who are riding the park are younger um, kids, uh, you know, young adults, that kind of thing. And if you have a good park, they're going to want to come to your mountain as opposed to another one. They'll drive farther just to get there. Um, but not only are they coming, they're bringing their families. You know, they're the ones who are making that decision. Right. Uh, if the kids are having fun, then the parents are going to follow. So really, you're talking about bringing entire families, um, you know, to the mountain, which is is really the key um, as far as those go. But um, obviously, I love, love seeing the kids have fun and, and enjoying themselves and all that. So, yeah, we're definitely a big part of our model. So if you look around the Northeast, if you look at the big parks like Corinthia, Mount Snow, or Loon, or Woodward over at Killington, these are places obviously that have a lot of resources. They can throw some money at these places. How, how do you manage that dynamic as an independent ski area owner? Because I think a lot of skiers don't appreciate how expensive and, and how difficult it is to maintain, especially with freeze thaw cycles and all these other things, 
to maintain these these massive park systems. So how do you manage to create something that's attractive to that demographic of of the kids, as we as you say, but doesn't break the scary or take over your operations? Yeah, for sure. It's it's definitely a fine balance. Um, you know, places like I think of um, back when Boulder was, you know, previously before it was Vail Resorts, <clears throat> Big Boulder was basically all terrain parks, um, which was a pretty cool model. Um, but I don't think that would ever work around here. Um, so yeah, there's there's that balance that you have to strike. And, you know, really the, the answer to, to how we kind of balance those, you know, the financial, you know, downfalls of having a park and stuff like that is basically I do a lot of it myself. I have two other guys who help out um, when they can, but really, you know, as far as all the grooming and the pushing and setting rails and stuff like that, I'm pretty much doing it on my own and, and with a couple other guys who are helping me. So, you know, that's that's really the, the only way we can do it. Those bigger, the bigger resorts all have huge crews and and park managers and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, basically I kind of look at it as a, uh, labor of love and, uh, and yeah, try and try and do the best we can with, uh, the limited resources we have, but by, but, you know, keep adding, add a couple features every year, a couple new rails, that kind of thing. We just bought a couple more for this rail jam that we'll debut and then have for next year. So, um, that's kind of how we, how we work our way through it. I mean, that's gotta be the dream for someone who grew up skiing that kind of stuff is to have your own terrain park to sculpt so so just let's go back and talk a little bit about this because you are a true new york born and bred skier so tell us where you grew up skiing and about your family's history in the ski business yeah for sure so i grew up in fabius new york uh, just five minutes away from toggenberg yeah literally grew up started skiing there when i was two years old uh, my mother started working there before i was born so uh yeah she had a total of 32 years at uh toggenberg and um, yeah, I literally got to the point where I was getting off the school bus, um, you know, every winter. It would bring me right to Toggenberg. I literally wouldn't miss a day. So I'd, I'd ski every single day of the season right through high school. And yeah, that's that, that's where that was my second home. So tell us about when you transitioned into competition and talk about your competitive ski career a little bit. Yeah, for sure. Um, when I was eight years old, um, my parents put me into uh, the Gate Busters program down there. It's basically the, the uh, beginning race program. Started with that, ran right through. Really, I really enjoyed it, so I ran right through um, all the way up to uh, J1 um, when I was 18. At that point, I had gotten pretty heavily involved in the freestyle aspect of things, and that kind of took over a lot of my focus. I still enjoyyed racing, but there's, uh, as I'm sure you know, there's a lot of politics involved and a lot of uh, big egos in racing. So I kind of, I was pretty over it by that point. So uh, yeah, went to college. Uh, they tried to, uh, they were trying to recruit me for the, the race team at Clarkson, but, uh, yeah, I, I was just over that whole scene and, and kind of went, went full into the freestyle thing and, and, uh, the rest was history. Did you do that? Did you pursue that through a college or did you go off on your own? What, what was the arena that you competed in? Oh yeah, no, that's, I, I didn't do a ton of competing, um, in, in the freestyle aspect. Yeah. Obviously there were a little local events and stuff like that. Really. I, I just, I just enjoyed it. So it was really keeping it mellow and uh, and doing that kind of thing but uh yeah as far as racing goes um that was that was most of my my comp my competition career was uh racing up through j1s so you grew up skiing talk about your family's involvement at toggenberg yeah uh, my mother cindy she ran the main office um for 32 years um she did all the you know all the ticket sales season passes uh, she actually did all ran all the timing for the races that kind of stuff um, so I definitely got to see a lot of the behind the scenes things there at TOG. And once I was, I turned 16, I started designing the terrain park there, did that for six years. Even while I was in college, I was coming home most weekends to, uh, 
to overlook everything. And then um, I graduated college and, and actually went to work at Tog for a couple of years running the rental shop and, and the train parks as well. So, and since then, my, my sister has gotten into it as well. And she's now a, a PSIA instructor and runs our ski school here at Snow Ridge. So, um, yeah, we got the pretty much the whole family involved. So is there a straight line between Toggenberg and Snow Ridge as far as your work in the ski business, or did you work elsewhere as well over the years? Oh, yeah. I, I moved, actually moved out uh, from Toggenberg. I moved out to Breckenridge for three years, um, ran the kids' ski and ride school rental shop for uh, for Breck. Um, there were three of those shops that I managed there, and I uh, actually spent two summers at Mount Hood at uh, Wendell Summer Camp, which was uh, really a dream come true for me. That's like every every park kid um, dreams to go into Wendell's in the summer and um, being able to, to spend a couple summers there running the demo shop, um, seeing all the new gear before it was even available. It was just like <laughs> most amazing thing. So uh, yeah, I did that for three years and then uh, moved back, ran the, uh, ran the repair shop at Ski Company in Syracuse for one season. Um, that was my last year skiing at Toggenberg and then Snow Ridge came to be and here we are. So, so this is interesting, and I've heard this story, a similar story from other people who run ski areas in the Midwest or the Northeast, is that they go out west and uh, they do the ski bomb thing, and, and then they, they come back east. What, what ultimately drew you back to New York, Nick? Um, uh, to be completely honest, if it wasn't for Snow Ridge and you know my family and, and friends back here and everything, I would still be out there. Um, I absolutely loved it. I had no intentions of coming back, but... Um, you know, this opportunity was just too good to pass up. It's something that uh, my mother and I always, you know, talked about and kind of dreamed about being able to do together. And, uh, you know, it just worked out that way. So um, really, I wouldn't have come back for any other reason. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, I'm, I'm glad I did. So you have a really interesting background. If we if we go through this resume for a moment, break it down. So you worked at Toggenberg, kind of the ultimate independent. We'll talk a lot more about Toggenberg in a little bit. Then you went to Breck, worked at Vail Resorts for three years, I'm assuming, unless you worked at an independent shop, was it, were you employed by Vail? Yes, I was. Yep. Okay. So you worked for Vail and then you go up to Hood and you're, you're working at a big independent. And then now you come back as an owner of Snow Ridge. So you've, you've had this really wide range of experience. Just talk a little bit about the different perspective that that gave you and how that's valuable as you're doing your own thing now, just to see how all these different companies of all these different sizes did it. Yeah, for sure. It's, um, it's been really cool to be able to see um, you know, the different, different sizes of different companies that are doing what they do. And, um, you know, starting off at Toggenberg, obviously, um, that was the only thing I knew the small, small New York ski area and, um, how things were run and, and the, um, the strategy involved with that and all that kind of thing. And then moving out to Breckenridge and literally, you know, one of the biggest ski areas in the world and just kind of blowing my mind with all the, <laughs> all the moving parts and all that kind of stuff. Um, but still being able to see how it was structured and, and, um, you know, how, how everything worked behind the scenes was, was very beneficial. And then going up and seeing a, a summer operation was also mind blowing and, you know, skiing and, excuse me, skiing in July and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, it, it was just absolutely wild. So yeah, being able to take all those different, all those different perspectives and strategies and, you know, ways that they run their, their operation and bring them all and kind of combine all these different ideas here at Snow Ridge. We do a few things a little differently than I think some other places do. And it's uh, all come together because of the different things I've seen at different resorts. So you're bouncing around the West and having a good time. And, and did the opportunity 
to purchase Snow Ridge come up when you were out there? How did that opportunity come up and and how did it happen? How did you make it happen? Yeah, so uh, more or less, um, the the resort was listed uh, through a realtor and a family friend of ours who actually used to run the, the ski school at Tagerberg, you know, saw the saw the posting and sent it to Cindy because he knew that we were definitely interested in doing that someday. And yeah, more or less, she she actually ended up kind of lining up with a uh, summer trip that her and my dad came out to visit me out in Breckenridge. And, you know, we talked about all the all the different uh, opportunities and and kind of the whole the whole deal uh, in general and, you know, kind of made up our minds that it was something that we wanted to to go after. So. Uh, yeah, we started off with the the financing aspect, which you know we are we, by no means my family um, you know independently wealthy we were able to just do you know some sort of cash deal or something. So we had to uh, we had to get the right finances together and everything. And and um, I actually ended up moving back to New York while all that was happening because we were so um, you know we were so dedicated to the idea at that point that uh, it took it certainly took some time. I think it was almost a year and a half before we were able to actually finalize everything. Um, but yeah, that's kind of how it all came to be. When did you actually get the keys to Toggenberg or uh, I'm sorry, Snow Ridge? Yeah, it was, um, let's see, our first season was the fall of 2015 and we actually ran that season on a, uh, like a lease. The deal was not finalized yet, but we were both, um, Russ Horn, who was the previous owner, um, and, uh, and ourselves, we kind of had a, you know, an agreement, um, put together where we, you know, basically ran ran the mountain on lease for the winter and then finalized the following summer of 2016. So how did it feel, Nick? Take us back to the moment, if, if you can. How did it feel to own a ski area? I think anyone who grows up skiing or in probably most of the people listening to this podcast have thought about that at some point, right? Having my own ski area, being able to do what I want with it and, and craft it into my own thing. Just take us into that moment. What did that feel like to to look at the mountain and say, oh, this is ours. Yeah, uh, mind-blowing to say the least, Um, surreal for sure. It definitely brought up a lot of nervous feelings as well because it's like, you know, we we actually did this and uh, now we got to make sure it's successful. But I think that was definitely more of an undertone than anything else because I was um, thankfully so naive at the time and (laughs) didn't understand (laughs) how much was going to be involved. So uh, yeah, it, it really was, you know, one of those life changing moments um, that uh, was kind of just like, all right, you know, we've we finally did it. And, and here we go. So this is a family operation. Break this down for us, Nick. Who does what? Who in your family is involved? Sure. Cindy is uh, is the uh, owner of the resort um, and she, you know, she's she's the big boss. So she runs uh, all the finances. Um, she runs our main office and ticket desk still just like she used to at uh, Toggenberg. But yeah, she's kind of taken over more of the financial side of things, um, you know, paying the bills, keeping the books, all that kind of stuff, making sure we're not driving ourselves into the ground. And uh, and I kind of oversee everything else. So, um, you know, really my my main focus is the outdoor stuff, um, snowmaking, grooming, chairlifts, you know, all those outdoor operations are kind of under my watch. And, you know, I'm checking in uh, daily, weekly and all the other departments, making sure everything there is, is good to go. But um, that's also kind of a group effort between her and myself. And now um, both my, my sister and my wife are now um, are with us. Uh, Jackie, my sister, runs our ski school program. She also took over a lot of our uh, HR responsibilities 
um, and got all that stuff organized for us um, this year. She's been with us for two seasons now. It's been absolutely amazing having her around. And just recently, this past this past winter, my uh, wife also came on board, and now she does all our uh, our marketing and some of our events uh, coordinating and stuff like that. So yeah, we have uh, a really tight knit team, and obviously we all. We all kind of keep each other in check and, and uh, make sure everything's getting done when it has to. So it, it works out. So talk about the team that you inherited from the previous owners. Did you have some pretty good veteran folks on the ground who, who really knew the mountain and the lifts and the, and the idiosyncrasies of it? Yeah, for sure. Um, I really relied, particularly on the, in the first couple, two or three years, I had to rely on on some of our mountain ops guys who uh, had been here for years. You know, one of, one of our uh, lift attendants, uh, Don Mulligan, is celebrating his 50th season here at Snow Ridge. This is absolutely amazing. amazing. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> phenomenal. Um, and he's still going great. So, uh, yeah, he's he's been great. Um, yeah, and a few of the other guys who I really had to rely on. I, I had no chairlift background coming in here, so it's something I've had to get very familiar with very quickly and bring in some other people to help me do that. But yeah, we, we definitely inherited a, a core group of guys outside who helped a lot. There's still a couple people inside who are uh, who run our cafeteria and and stuff like that who have been here for years. Um, so that's all been great, but we have had all, we've brought in a lot of our own people since as well and uh, been able to uh, really, really build a, a pretty awesome team here that, uh, that I'm pretty proud of all the stuff that we've been able to get done. So what did you find when you showed up in fall of 2015? What kind of shape was the ski area in? What were the big priorities that you had to tend to right away? Yeah, it was, um, for lack of a better term, it was in pretty rough shape. You know, there was, there was a lot of things uh, that were in a state of disrepair. You know, the horns did, did do a great job while they were here for the 12 years they were, they were around. Um, but, you know, they were, <clears throat> they were snowmobilers at heart and, um, and kind of took took on this whole situation as uh, almost you know like a, a side project kind of deal but you know they did they did as well as they could while they were here but um you know the chairlifts probably were the main thing that needed the most attention when we first arrived it took it took a few years for us to get um, get them back up to the shape that i felt really confident in and now they're to the point where i i absolutely uh, have full confidence in those lifts and all our equipment you know after one season we had to replace our groomer so now we uh we actually are able to have two of those now snowmaking equipment stuff like that that was all kind of you know it's, it still worked but it was older and uh, either needed some love or needed to be replaced. So that, that was basically the, the situation that we ran into and along with some of the buildings that, you know, needed some some extra love as well. So that's all stuff that we've been able to uh, to tackle over the last uh, several years. So that's a pretty big list. And, and you alluded to this earlier, just how much work it takes. And you're, as you said, naivety when you first took over the resort. So being a, a seasoned operator now, Help us, the naive masses out here listening to this, understand what does it take to keep an operation like this going, especially when it, it's family run and you can't just cash a check from somewhere else to keep things going. Just help us understand the whole process and the effort behind that. For sure. So, um, you know, to be completely honest, our first five years, this, uh, you know, we didn't turn a profit. Um, so we, we had to kind of survive those first five years, um, uh, you know, doing all that we had all this this list of projects and dreams that we had. But, you know, almost all that takes money. Not only that, it takes time. And uh, when you can't you can't afford to bring in employees to do these projects, you got to do them yourself when you don't have the money to, you know, 
pay your own salary, you got to go get another job. So, you know, for the first uh, three or four years, I was working another summer job, uh, making money that way and splitting my time. And, and um, the more I was working elsewhere, it was the less I was able to get done here. So, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was a full-time commitment. We were basically volunteering to make all this stuff happen and, uh, and get it done. We were, you know, spending whatever money we had on, on repairs and upgrades, um, you know, rather than putting it in our own bank account. And that's, you know, that's still the, the case, but, uh, thankfully we've had, uh, we've had a couple of great seasons now and, uh, we're much more financially stable and, and, uh, we can breathe a little bit, but uh, yeah, those, those first five years were anxious times. They were stressful and, you know, that certainly hasn't changed too much, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it was, um, it's pretty wild. It's, it's, you know, when you kind of realize that you're working for yourself and there's no one to bail you out, you know, you got to make it happen. And, and thankfully, finally, finally, we were, you know, kind of crested that hill and, and we're, uh, we're in greener pastures now. I mean, not only does it take money and time, Nick, but it takes determination and grit and belief. How did you summon that energy and, and that belief over those course of that five years when, you're not even generating any income off of the ski area. How did you keep going and not say, you know what, this is a tough business. This is not for me. I'm just going to go do something that's a little more stable, allows me to put, kick my feet up in the evening. What kept you going? Um, honestly, I think it's it was a combination of things, but just just a pure the will not to fail uh, for me. It's something that I just I have a really hard time with, and I'll drive myself into the ground, um, you know, to a fault. I'll I'll keep working until you know it works out. Thankfully, I have an incredible wife who who got me through a lot of those tough times, and um, you know, she was kind of my rock through the whole thing. But yeah, it's um, it's a matter of just you know keeping your head down and, and working through it, and and knowing that our vision for this place um, was realistic, and there's the opportunities that we saw when we first bought it you know, we're still there. It was just a matter of time to, to get to it. So yeah, they always say, you know, it takes, takes five years to, uh, for a new business to turn a profit. And I always considered us as a new business, even though, you know, this was our 76th uh, year of operation. You know, when we took over, we were starting from nothing. So I kind of approached it as a new business and, and honestly it worked out exactly that way. Five years later, it, uh, it kind of, kind of finally broke free and, and we were able to uh, make it happen. I think it's really interesting that, you run this business with your mom and these sorts of character traits that you're describing, those tend to be generational, right? These are, these are things like you grow up that way and, yeah. and, and, and people impart these values on you. So, so talk about your mom and, and, and your parents and, and their character and, and, and how they modeled that belief and, and not only raising you, but as a business partner and said, okay, you know, we're not making money, but we will. We have to keep doing what we're doing. We have to believe in ourselves. Uh, you know, let's let's just push through this. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I definitely that definitely comes from my parents. Um, my dad doesn't have much to do with the resort itself, but um, but he's now retired um, after working, you know, thirty some odd years um, with an eight to five, um, keeping the family going, try waking up at four or five a.m. to bring me to ski races that kind of thing so yeah he he definitely uh passed on a lot of that to me and and my mom you know she still they still live in fabius she drives an hour and a half each way oh, wow. uh, five days a week so she's on the road for three hours a day and uh, you know that that commitment alone is is mind-boggling to me but uh but yeah she's i, I think even almost possibly more so than i do she believed in this whole thing 
um, from the beginning and really wanted to make sure it worked. And you know, not only that, but obviously there's a pretty big financial aspect to this because we're all in now. So we have to, we kind of have to make it work. <laughs> yeah, stay retired. So, um, but yeah, we, uh, yeah, we, they, they definitely passed that on to me and, um, I've, I've watched that growing up and, and, uh, yeah, I think that's kind of where that comes from. Are your parents skiers, Nick? Um, my mother is, yep. My dad, uh, skied because he wanted to spend time with us. <laughs> That's where we were in the winter. Uh, so it's been a number of years since he has now, but yeah, I, I, uh, appreciate the effort he put into that when I was younger and he was always skiing when we were on family trips and stuff. It was never his favorite thing, but, uh, but he, he did it and it, I have a lot of fond memories because of it. How much do you get to ski these days, Nick, when, as you're, as you're busy running the resort? I know on the day I was up there, uh, you were busy fixing a snow gun. So how much do you actually get out there to enjoy the product? Yeah, it's, uh, actually this time of year, not only is it, uh, relieving because you know, the kind of the stress and the craziness of the season is over, but, uh, it's also kind of my time to get out and ride. So we have some trips planned to Vermont and stuff like that, that, uh, you know, the end of the season is really a time when I get to catch up on some of that. But yeah, throughout the season, um, I should get out and ski more. I kind of, you know, many other people tell me I, I work too much and I need to get out and enjoy it. But yeah, I probably got out maybe 10 times this season um, here at Snow Ridge for, you know, anywhere from three to 10 runs at a time. But yeah, it's so I think the time is there. My sister um, definitely takes advantage of it more than I can. And I and I, uh, I envy that, but, but yeah, she is one of the people who tries to uh, push me out there and, and get out and ride a little bit more. This time of year, do you ever go flip the lift on and just take some laps when, when the resort's <laughs> empty? <laughs> we talked about doing that on the T-bar a few weeks ago, but uh, <laughs> ended up checking it out just because I know how much those things cost to run. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to justify, but uh, no, so we haven't done that. We have used the, the new magic carpet a few times by ourselves, which is nice, but uh, that's just on our little learning center there. All right. Let's talk about the mountain here. Let's start with your lift fleet. Last summer, you removed the old snowy metals, meadows double. This was a really short lift. 95 foot vertical rise over there on Little Mountain. Just take us into the decision to remove snowy metals, uh, snowy, <laughs> I can't say snowy <laughs> meadows, and why you didn't replace it with another lift. Yeah, so uh, basically the snowy meadows lift and the Little Mountain lift uh, run parallel down there at the far end of the resort. Uh, snowy meadows is our, that was the smaller lift, like you mentioned, the very, you know, the next step up from our bunny bowl. But Little Mountain ran ran right next to it. It goes up maybe, you know, another 50 vertical feet, something like that. But a little bit longer lift. Um, but basically what what how that all came about was we had to replace the cable on the Little Mountain lift uh, last summer. And um, this will probably surprise a lot of people, but that project alone probably cost near $60,000. Wow. The snowy meadow lift was coming up right behind it. It was probably going to be due this summer, if not next. And we kind of made the financial decision, most of all, to to start putting all those resources into Little Mountain and combining the two areas so that they were usable from one lift. So that that's kind of where that all came from. The snowy meadow lifts needed a lot of work. Um, and it was coming up really quick, and we knew the the time was right just to uh, to make that change. It's something I've been looking at since we bought the place, um, but never quite were in the position to do it. So yeah, Little Mountain now is our focus down there. Um, we built a new ramp up top. We made the the transition down to Snowy Meadow from the top of Little Mountain much more gradual. And uh, we're going to widen that out a little bit more this summer even to make it a nice uh, beginner 
nice wider uh, beginner trail that uh, you can still utilize and get down to snowy meadow from. And yeah, we're gonna we're gonna we have a bunch more uh, plans with that lift in general, um, just to slow it down a little bit, make it a little more beginner friendly, and uh, and you know just keep working on a lot of the uh, elect- electrical parts and uh, mechanical parts and stuff like that, and get everything uh, nice and updated and all that kind of stuff. So, so Snowy Meadows that lift, according to Lift Blog, was installed in 1964. So as you said. It was coming up. It needed a lot of work. It wasn't a very big lift. However, you just referred to the, the how expensive it is to run lifts. So just talk about that a little bit. For those of us who don't know, I mean, how much does it cost to run a chairlift for a day if you think about the electricity and the labor because you have to have someone at the top and at the bottom? And, and maybe it's more. I don't, I don't know if New York requires you to have a certain crew to run a lift. Yeah, so we have a top and bottom guy, and I have a, a floater basically who runs around and gives breaks and that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, so you know, salary alone, you're looking at uh, you know a couple hundred dollars a day just in personnel. Electricity, you're looking at more than that. It's probably closer to five hundred, depending on the length of the day and that kind of stuff. You know, then there's there's all the different maintenance things that are involved, particularly in the off season, testing and new parts and you know, shiv liners and cables, you know, fortunately those only wear out every, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. Uh, right. But unfortunately those, that's, that's the position we're in now where all the, all the lift cables are getting to that point where they have to be replaced. So, yeah, I mean, from a day to day, you're looking at, uh, you know, seven to 700 to a thousand dollars and a very general very general sense. Um, that's for our smaller one, you know, the bigger ones that we have, the longer ones with uh, bigger motors and stuff. Um, those will take some more energy to run and, and be a little more costly. But yeah, it's um, it's not cheap. And when you're talking about running, you know, four or five of them, um, that obviously adds up pretty quick. So that's, that's a really interesting breakdown, Nick. And if you go over to your Northridge side of your mountain, you have two parallel chairlifts, two old hall doubles. And these are really the main lifts that service Snow Ridge. So you have Ridge Runner and you have North Chair. And Ridge Runner seems to be the one that you spin most of the time. And yes. then and then North Chair is your redundant lift. So as you think long-term, and these are both also lifts from the 60s, old hall doubles. As you think long-term, would it make sense to consolidate those as well? Or what's your what's your long-term thinking around your your two main double lifts there on North? For sure. That would be, uh, at the moment, it's kind of like a, the pie in the sky idea, um, but certainly something that we want to move towards. Um, I would love to have one newer lift um, basically run right up through the middle of, uh, of north and the bumps there, uh, rather than having the two redundant lifts, which is, you know, they, they are useful in their own uh, aspects, uh, considering what trails you're coming down. But yeah, I mean, the the idea of, you know, obviously these lifts, uh, they'll run forever as long as you maintain them. So that's kind of the plan we're on right now. But um, it would be nice to have a newer, a newer lift with, uh, you know, it's just the same thing, you know, one left, one less lift to uh, run as far as uh, personnel goes and having to pay that uh, one less lift to maintain. So um, that would that would certainly be a the end goal uh, if we can ever get there. So when you say they would run, it would run up the center. Are you thinking literally there between where North and Ridge Runner are now? That would be my original idea. We'd certainly, whenever the, uh, whenever that plan was kind of coming to fruition, I would look at that a little bit closer, but um, that would be the idea that I would have uh, starting out. So talk about the existing chairs that you have there. You said they needed a lot of work. 
What did you have to do to bring those up to speed and how happy are you with those lifts right now for the current moment? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm thrilled with what we've been able to do. Um, you know, we, we actually just finished a season where we had only one lift was down for one day. And that was, uh, unfortunately just a, a safety switch that we did couldn't catch in time before we you know, just called it quits for the day, but we literally had no uh, significant breakdowns this season, which I'm really, really proud of. So yeah, yeah, it's been great. We've, you know, rebuilt, uh, rebuilt motors. We've replaced, you know, substantial parts, um, on all the lifts, um, basically, you know, going through all the wheels every year, all the shivs on the towers, checking all those, making sure the liners are good. It's just, you know, there, there's so many moving parts that it, that it's been, just been, uh, it's been a lot. It'd be hard to list them all, but uh, yeah, from from the moving parts, the electronics and the the wiring, all that kind of stuff, we've uh, made a lot of improvements, and and I think it's showing. So over on the other side of the mountain, you have the Snow Pocket T bar, and I just love this lift, Nick. It's it's one of my favorite pods in New York state. The terrain is just so fun. It's, it's, you seem to keep it mostly natural. I'm not sure how much you groom over there, but, uh, it's, it's this old school lift with, uh, with still the wooden, uh, tees on it. It's, it's so fun to ride. Just talk a little bit about that lift and, and that terrain over there and how you manage that whole area. For sure. Yeah. The, uh, snow pocket T bar for a number of years, um, has always kind of been an afterthought. Um, it's a great little lift, but it's not a chairlift. So it takes a little, um, it's, it's not as troublesome as, uh, some of the chairs when you're talking about maintenance and making sure everything is done on them. Um, but we were finally able to, um, bring it up into our, you know, give it some more significant time this, this off season, um, did a ton of work on it, made sure that uh, all the shivs were running right. It was the first season we've had here that it hasn't derailed a single time. So that's another, you know, another sign of what we've been able to do over there. All the tees are going to be coming off this spring in order to uh, to take out all the old grease, which causes them to freeze up uh, when it gets cold, that kind of thing. So it's finally getting the love it needs, but uh, it's a great little lift. Um, it's done us, done us well down there. Um, but yeah, the philosophy for for snow pocket basically there's no snow making down there it's all natural it's called snow pocket for a reason for whatever i don't know if it's you know how the winds blow and the trees are are positioned but uh it literally seems to get more snow than the rest of the hill does and it, it settles in there and it's it's just awesome conditions all the time if there's powder i groom uh, grooming down there is very limited you know i basically groom the made trail snow pocket give it three or four passes and then the other two i get one pass down just for uh for ski patrol purposes being able to get a sled down a little easier but if we haven't had any fresh snow we'll we'll groom it wall to wall and uh that's just as fun too because you're you're riding on all natural snow it's it's not man-made it's never icy down there it's really just a, a great area it's only open on weekends and holidays so it's it's you know if we get a snowstorm on tuesday or wednesday it's probably the only place in the in the state if not the northeast that has powder turns on the weekend so yeah, I I want to set this up a little bit for people who are listening because it's if you live in certain parts of the country, fresh powder at a lift serve resort has almost become an impossible thing. Like you might get one run in, maybe two if you really know what you're doing, but it gets chewed up so fast. But that's not New York, <laughs> upstate New York. And I, I happened to be there last year on Martin Luther King Day. And it was, I, this was 2021. And I believe that was the day that you opened it for the season. And so I was there when it opened around 11 and took a bunch of laps and it was great. You know, you'd gotten a bunch of snow. It was maybe a foot, 18 inches, depending on where you were. 
And uh, as I'm waiting online, I'm I'm looking up there and I'm like, oh, you know, this is this is going to get eaten up pretty quick. You know, it's a holiday. And I tell you, Nick, I must have taken 15 runs on Snow Pocket and and gotten fresh tracks every single time. And I wasn't I wasn't finding secret stashes. I'm literally standing in the lift line, looking up at untracked powder for three hours and continuing to lap it. And, and yeah. so it, it it is just a special experience over there. It is. It's a. It's something um, that I've never experienced at any other resort. Um, it's. It's very cool to be able to be down there. Um, crowds are pretty pretty minimal unless it's a you know a crazy busy day or something, and you happen to have uh, more people show up down there. But you're never waiting more than than thirty <laughs> seconds or to a minute to get on that that T bar. And there isn't a ton of terrain. I mean, it's literally four main trails and then uh, some new glades that we're, we've been adding down there. But for whatever reason, it skis really big and, uh, and you can get fresh tracks days <laughs> after a storm down there. So it's, it's pretty unique. Is there a future version of Snow Ridge where Snow Pocket is open during the week? What would it take to make that happen? That would take um, a pretty substantial increase in our weekday um, skier visits. Um, we have seen that the last two years, um, basically going from, is it worth being open during the week to, um, wow, this is great. It's nice to be open during the week, but we're literally only running Ridge Runner and Bunny Bowl until you know our night skiing operations on Thursday and Friday nights. But we'd probably have to at the very least, double those skier visits in order to to see Snow Pocket being open during the week, you know, just just to be able to to recover that you know financial loss of having to run the the T bar. So it is a possibility, but uh, I think we're we're probably a ways out from seeing that happen. You know, we've seen a a resurgence in the popularity of surface lifts over the past few years, and and I think it's for a lot of the reasons that you mentioned. They're a little bit more low maintenance, as far as they're not really susceptible to wind holds. Would you ever consider though upgrading that area to a chairlift or do you like the T-bar there? Um, you know, if I had a nickel for every time I was asked that question, I'd be a, a rich man. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I would absolutely consider it. Um, but I think the more realistic situation would be um, upgrading that T-bar to, you know, a new Palma or something like that. Um, I think the T-bar kind of gives the, it adds to the, you know, the vibe down there, the feel of, of snow pocket really centers around that T-bar. You know, if we could upgrade it and have a newer T-bar, you know, I think you would keep that vibe, but also be able to offer even, you know, a, a better experience and, and uh, you know, be able to keep that, that area running for, for longer. So um, I think that would be the more realistic way to go. You know, if I, I certainly wouldn't dismiss the opportunity in the future to put a chairlift down there, but uh, I think uh, it's probably more likely going to be some sort of a surface lift. Yeah, well, you know, when you consolidate North and Ridge Runner, you might have an extra lift. <laughs> yeah, well, the whole reason of, of doing that would be to get rid of those older lifts. <laughs> I'm trying to move them anywhere on my own property. <laughs> so the, the resort, as I said, it's... So a lot of a lot of resorts in New York are set up like this, basically a long ridge, right? Snow ridge, but yeah. it's it's quite a, a distance once you're over on Snow Pocket to get back. Have you considered some sort of lift on South just to help folks get around or distribute traffic more? Or, or yeah, um, we actually, strangely enough, just you know we just took down the the old South Slope T bar this past summer, which has been out of operation for uh, you know over twenty years. Um, 
that was the nearest one. But that's, again, that's basically right next to the bottom of Ridge Runner. You know, it would be, that's probably another pie-in-the-sky idea. You know, if, if this place was to blow up the way I would, I would love to see it, then uh, sure, that would be a, a great addition. But at the moment, that's not really in the plans. So you have this, uh, you just mentioned that T-bar that you took out. You still had, at least when I was there a couple months ago, you still have the top terminal there, that old kind of really yep. cool steel cage. Are you going to leave that there as a kind of memorial? Um, it's at the moment, that's, uh, that's all it is, but the bottom certainly will stay that way. Uh, we would like to do something cool with that bottom shack, turn that into something fun, but that top one actually has some, some pretty usable, uh, steel on it. So we might be dismantling that as well and, and repurposing that for uh, other places around the area. All right. Let's talk about your trail network. You added five trails between the, uh, 2020 to 21 ski season and the one we just finished breakdown. Mm-hmm break down those changes for us. Yeah. So uh, actually the year before we added five other trails. So in the last two wow. years, we've been able to add uh, 10 trails altogether um, for the, it's a, it's a combination of um, adding some, basically putting some trails on the map that were already there, but uh, we're just never labeled. Um, and also adding, opening up some new glades, uh, just a couple new trails in general. So this past year we focused on the little mountain area and added, uh, added a nice, um, beginner the kids beginner run little loomy land and also easy rider to get down to snowy meadow those were two of the additions we added we basically put a glade on the map um the lower gulf glade uh, over on the north side um, where some of our more serious terrain is that glade was already there it just wasn't named uh, we cleared it out a little bit more but didn't actually didn't have to do much work to it to make it you know a really legit uh glade run and added over on Snow Pocket, separated a couple of the glades to from uh, Upper Pocket Glade and Lower Pocket Glade. Those have been substantially cleared out over the last couple of years. They're really fun to ride. Um, I spent a lot of time in those um, on one of our powder days. It was just a, a, a great, great area there. And and we are we started to develop Pocket Knife Trail, which has been on the map for a number of years. Um, I my my main the bottom half of the trail is done, and it's. Um, basically an, an open trail it's one groomer width wide that i can a groom when we don't have snow the top half of the trail is going to be coming off of rock and robin um and my my vision for that is if you've ever been to vel resorts they have a trail called clown nine that's just wide open trees but still wide enough to be able to get a groomer through when you have to not really a glade run but it's also not really just a regular trail so that's kind of my my vision for that that which we'll uh, continue working on this summer and you also moved the Progression Park from down on south up to the top of Ridge Runner. Talk yeah. about that decision and how that worked out. Yeah, for sure. It was, uh, originally, it was it was down there on the bottom of south because that's where I always had snow. You know, I have a heavy snowmaking presence down there, um, so it was just a logical place to put it. We got a lot of feedback from the riders and stuff saying that they would they'd love to see it somewhere else because after you hit the mini park, you're hiking back over to Ridge Runner to get back up there again, especially the snowboarders. So, so that's actually something that came to be last season. Um, one of my guys kind of pointed out that the top of North was uh, really just an open space. that was unused. Um, I have snow making there as well. I said, all right, well, let's, let's give it a go. And, and it, uh, it really worked out. Um, so we brought it back again this year. And I have some plans to take out some trees at the top there and expand that a little bit more towards Ridge Runner to open up the top of North to make it a little easier for the general public to get past who aren't going into the park. So, yeah, we're going to kind of double down on that location and and, uh, and keep that going. So you've added five trails in, in each of the last two off seasons. You alluded to some more 
that we may see on the trail map for this coming season, 2022 to 23. What do you have in mind? Yeah, so uh, we have some spots that we've that we are that we're looking at to open up a couple more glades. And the old, like I mentioned, the old uh, South Slope T bar was taken out this past summer. And after we remove the concrete uh, ports that are under each tower, that's going to be opened up for a trail as well. So we have at least uh, two or three that we have in mind, if not more, if uh, if we get ambitious. I love that sl- uh, South t-bar line i've actually been skiing that for a few years now and it's a really fun really fast little trail uh usually i have it all to myself where are the new glades that you were alluding to that you might clear yeah so there's uh really the snow pocket area is is prime for more expansion down there we have uh actually the farthest south end of the property the sapline glades are are definitely something where we want to expand out out out, uh from the resort a little bit more there the bottom part uh we don't own down by the road but we own a substantial distance out away from that last trail so we'd like to expand there and then there's you know the glades in between black river and von allman are also pretty uh, primed for opening up as well. So those would be two, probably the first two locations we look at. Expanding Pocket Knife, like I said, and and the uh, T-Bar line, those would be the first ones that we're going to focus on. So as you look far into the future, you mentioned that you own some of the land, skiers right off of, off of the Pocket T-Bar. How much land do you own and what is the potential to develop that into the future? Yeah, for sure. It's um, at the moment that land goes out, probably it's kind of a strange rectangle that comes off the side of that uh, uh, Von Alban trail. But that's that the more potential that has in my mind is for mountain biking and being a part of our our mountain biking trail system out there. But yeah, we're going to open that up. I would say it's, you know, realistically, it could go another probably 200 yards out into the woods there to open up those glades and, and be able to get back. There is a we have a new neighbor down there who's building a house, but uh, thankfully he's a skier and he's excited about it. Uh, but we still have to give people a uh, legitimate way to get back to the bottom of the T-bar. So uh, you can't go out too far before you have to walk yourself back on the road. But uh, yeah, we'll clear out enough to to get people back over the T-bar uh, easily and safely. And and uh, it'll be, it's going to be pretty prime over there. People have been skiing it for years, but uh, you know it was never made into a legit trail. So I figure it was, it was about time to, to do that. So is that something you could envision as kind of a side country pod that's on the trail map, but just not managed? Yeah, pretty much. Um, I'd really like everything to be, you know, ski patrol accessible and keep it legit. But yeah, I, I could certainly see that happening. It's definitely a situation where you get out far enough and you're going to be walking yourself back down the road. Um, you know, like if you're at J Peak or something like that. I didn't say take her wrong. Um, but I think the other place where that could be possible is some really gnarly terrain on the uh, the north side over there where uh, Crookshank and Amazing Grace and all those come down to skiers left. There is just some of the craziest terrain um, that I've ever seen in the northeast that I think could be a really cool kind of, uh, you know, side country area where, um, you know, go at your own risk because you know you're on your own kind of thing but yeah that that's in our in my plans for the future you know not not too far down the road do you own that land skiers left of north yes yep we own there's a uh, a reservoir um where we get our water from uh, that's about uh that's quite a ways down probably half a mile down from um, the bottom of the hill and uh and then we border state land um uh, up above that so there's there's quite a bit of property over there that could be uh utilized and when i say it's steep i'm talking like 55 um degrees steep so it's yeah. like some 
some crazy stuff over there, but um, you really need a lot of snow to be able to ride it. But uh, when when there's a lot of snow, it's pretty epic. Yeah, let's talk about that that pod on Northridge a little bit, Nick, because you're right. It, it is really really unique terrain over there for New York. And and actually when I'm back there, I feel more like I'm in Vermont or, or somewhere else in the Northeast. I, I, you know, it doesn't have that New York vibe at all. And there's, there's a drop in, I don't know if it's from, from Challenger into lower golf blade or from amazing grace, yep. but, but there's a drop in there that that's just so wild. Just talk about that terrain and how distinct that is and how that separates snow Ridge really from, from anything else I've really seen in New York State. Yeah, that uh, that drop in you're talking is probably um, the top of Amazing Grace, where basically you're coming down into a, a chute that's, um, I don't know the exact uh, steepness, but it's probably, a, it's all of 40 degrees. Yeah. And you're coming into a chute where, you know, you, you can make some hop turns to start, but uh-huh. <laughs> uh, you're getting down until where it opens up and you can make some bigger turns. But yeah, it's, it's a pretty intense place. And that's one of the reasons I changed the designations for uh, a lot of those trails to double blacks because I thought they were uh, they were definitely deserving of that to kind of let the general public know that this is this is no joke over here uh, if you don't know what you're doing you know maybe stick over on the other trails um, because we do we do have several people every year kind of get in over their head over there and then just end up sliding down on their butt you know which is fine but uh, we'd like to keep the snow, snow as good as we can over there um, <laughs> Yeah, the first time I rolled in over that that ridge line, our first year here, I felt like I was in back in Breckenridge again, which is crazy to say because you know we're, you know, five hundred feet up, not not ten thousand. <laughs> but yeah, it's just that feel when you when you kind of roll over, you can see the the ravine on the other side. It, it really just brought me back to the burn at Breck, where um, you know you're you're rolling over the edge, and all it is is a steep steep face with trees and. You can see the across the valley to the other side, and yeah, it's it's pretty wild. It's a very cool ravine over there. Yeah, it really is. It's no joke over there. So I'm I'm very tantalized by what you just described. Even skiers left of that, and yeah. from the from the topography, the kind of trail map, it looks like that drainage would lead back to one way out. So hopefully, yes. you can find a way to do that in the next few years. Yeah, for sure. It'll involve uh, you know it'll involve some uh, scouting and uh, probably a couple more bridges to make sure people can get across <laughs> the bottom. But yeah, it's it's a very cool, very cool piece of property that I'm I'm looking forward to expanding into. So let's talk about snow a little bit here. I, I mentioned in the intro that Snow Ridge averages more than 200 inches of snow per season, and and that's a pretty big number for the Northeast. Really, outside of Northern Vermont, there's only one other area of the of the Northeast that gets that kind of snow, and and that's the Lake Effect regions of New York. So just break this down for us. Your your special location. Uh, on or near Tug Hill, I, I can never really figure out which it is, but but break down the whole geography of it and why it is that you get so much more snow than everywhere else in New York. Yeah, so we are we're actually right on the eastern edge of the Tug Hill Plateau. When I say plateau, literally you can get to the top of our hill and it's basically flat all the way to to Lake Ontario. Oh wow! So basically, we're we're literally right on the edge that goes down into the Black River Valley, and that cold air that comes across the lake generates, you know, a lake effect band that it either hits or it doesn't. You know, we can get um, we can get two feet of snow here, and literally 15 minutes down the road, they could have gotten a dusting. Uh, so lake effect is definitely a strange strange beast, but uh, when the band hits, it is absolutely outrageous. It is. A different world. Um, again, going back to my first year when I 
when I experienced our first lake effect storm, I was like, what is happening? I couldn't see anything. It was just dumping harder than I've ever seen before. And, and it's, it's just a really unique, unique situation. So you came up in central New York and Toggenberg does get some lake effect, but you said that it's even more intense up there. And Macaulay, I believe, shares your same uh, your same lake effect band. So just talk about the difference in how much more intense it is it, at Snow Ridge, even from what you grew up with in central New York. For sure. Um, so, so the one, th- one of the first things I learned when um, when we came up here was there was a, a study done by guys out from Utah who um, uh, the, their name eludes me now, but it's like the Wasatch uh, powder guys or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But anyway, they did a uh, they did a crazy um, study about the snow quality and um, basically the density of the snow that comes off of Lake Ontario on the Tug Hill and. Um, as far as the water quality goes, they compared it to the snow that they get in Utah and Montana, who obviously claim to have the best snow in the world. So mm-hmm. it's lighter, it's fluffier, the flakes are just huge, and, and it just comes down, you know, when, when there's not a ton of wind, which, you know, you, you'll typically get with a storm, um, but these lake effect storms, they don't generate a ton of wind typically. So um, it's just falling straight down and just piling up inches an hour. Um, kind of situation so yeah it's it's just it's just so wild the the lake effect storms to get down in the Syracuse area and stuff like that are great but the snow isn't always as light and fluffy um, it can have a little more more water uh, quality to it so um, yeah it's just it's just mind-blowing if you haven't skied the snow up here it's uh, it's pretty great yeah just the fact that you have those two pods that don't have any snow making at all which is the North Ridge and the snow pocket t-bar which we've been discussing there's I, there's really not many areas, if any, in New York State that have a whole section of the mountain where they don't make snow. Uh, nonetheless, you do have some snowmaking, as, as you said, and I believe you have plans to build that out in the future. So talk about the snowmaking you do have at Snow Ridge and what your long-term vision is for that system. Yeah, so uh, when we bought the place, uh, basically we inherited four uh, Turbo Crystal snow guns, fan guns. And they were, they're literally from the early 90s. They hammer snow when the conditions are right. But if, uh, when they're not, you know, they can be a little tricky to, to make snow with. So uh, over the last couple of years, we've been starting to transition those to some other options. All, all these guns are portable. We basically make one trail at a time kind of thing. And uh, even then, you're you're moving guns around uh, a couple times at least in order to get the whole trail made. But yeah, we've recently purchased a couple Techno Alpen fans that have been really great. They're more more automated than the other ones are, and even then, we are um, planning to automate those fully. Get another fully automated gun this off season and automate our pump house in order to increase our efficiency um, at all times. Like I said, we get our water from that reservoir, which is um, you know a, literally a half mile pipe it comes down to our pump house and goes through a, a dam at the very top. So in order to get more water, we would either have to drill through that dam, which does not seem feasible, or uh, or create another pond or holding area, which also uh, would bring up nightmares as far as the DC concerned and stuff like that. So um, I don't think more water is the answer, but I think um, increasing our efficiency is. So that's kind of the step we're going. We're uh, moving more towards automation and knowing that every second that we're running is is going to be the most efficient that it can be, rather than uh, you know relying on my own human error and, <laughs> and others. So. <laughs> As far as the footprint of the system, do you have snowmaking everywhere that you want it, or would you like to expand that system into some of these other areas at some point? 
Yeah, I'd really like to expand snowmaking up onto uh, the little mountain area. At the moment, that is also all natural. I can run a hose up to the top of Snowy Meadow, uh, but that now goes across the snowmobile trail, which is not ideal. So yeah, I'd love to get snowmaking up on up on Little Mountain and Snowy Meadow, um, and then maybe from there, uh, you know, on on trails like Johansson and Kirsteiner and stuff. But that would be farther down the road. So you mentioned earlier that you now have two groomers, which is great. Just talk about your groomer fleet and also your grooming philosophy, because I, I like that, that big section of trail that you have between Ridge Runner and North Ridge. You, you groom some of it and then you leave some of it natural. And I, I mean, I, I tend to come up when you get snow on powder day. So maybe that's not your uh, daily management system, but I, I really get frustrated a lot in the Northeast with over grooming. And I understand that's the demographic and I understand that that's what people want. I understand there's free slaw cycles. However, I would like to see more of an effort by operators to create a, a varied and interesting experience where there's some bumps and there's some trees and there's some groomers and there's a little something for everyone. And you seem to do a really good job of that. So just talk a little bit about the, the grooming firepower you have and, and your philosophy around how you deploy that fleet to manage the mountain without overmanaging it. For sure, yeah. So, um, yeah, when we purchased the resort, we inherited a uh, 98 Piston Bully 200. Um, like I said, that lasted one season, and I was so frustrated with it that we had to had to find a way, even without having the money, to, uh, to replace that. So uh, we were able to replace that with a uh, 2006 Piston Bully Edge 200. Uh, which is an incredible upgrade for us. That's that was served us well for uh, five years. But you know, like anything else, you, when you're relying on one machine, that can cause some serious issues. So we would still have you know downtime because you know these machines they're not automatic. So yeah, it, it, you know the downtime that that caused um, over the years just kind of made us realize that we really needed two machines. So we went all in and got a 2016 uh, Piston Bully 400 Park Pro this year, which has been an absolutely phenomenal machine. It was a great upgrade. The Tiller is is an awesome upgrade from the other one, the 200 that we have. So that's been great. And uh, it, it's just been an awesome improvement. And being able to say that we have a uh, quote unquote fleet is pretty interesting. I've never quoted, <laughs> quoted it that way. But yeah, my, my philosophy has developed over the years. At first, um, when we arrived, I was a little powder happy and was like, oh, it's a powder day. We're not grooming, <laughs> you know, and uh, but I heard about it, you know, because yeah. there are people who who can't ski powder. There's people who don't like to ski powder, which is, you know, if, which took a while for me to realize. Um, <laughs> But, you know, yeah. it's much the case, you know what I mean? And, yep. and that's the case everywhere. Yep. Um, so I, I think I have a, a struck a really nice balance now on a powder day. Basically, I, I groom all the beginner trails pretty much the way I normally would. Um, our intermediate main intermediate trail, South Slope, I'll do two thirds of that. I'll do a third of North and and that's about it. And that gives that gives our um, non-powder customers enough to ride for the day and not get bored. But it also keeps the powder hounds happy and stuff like that. But um, on days when we don't have fresh snow, I like to have obviously groom as much as possible um, while keeping things interesting, like you said, so that that bump section in the middle between uh, Ridge Run and North is always natural. Um, If I was ever to groom that, I think the old timers would crucify me. (laughs) Uh, So that's going to stay that way. And yeah, we're, um, you know, I think I've struck a pretty good balance between groom terrain and, uh, and powder. How much of that relates back to your time at Breckenridge? Because that's, like you said, huge ski resort, but all, all of the resorts out West have a really good balance. I, I think mostly because they 
you just couldn't groom everything every night. The mountains are too big and it would, it would drive you out of business, right? Because yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you have to have, you know, a hundred snowcats, but, but how much of that comes from your time spent in Colorado and out West and, and just seeing how these big operators offered this complete experience? Yeah, for sure. It's uh, it definitely has a lot to do with that. Um, you know, we could go up, go up on a powder day, be able to literally, you know, ride pow all day and then go up the next day. And that same run would be, you know, perfect corduroy. And I think I definitely took that to heart. And in both, both situations are fun. You know what I mean? You can even, even a powder hound can have a great time on, on groomed runs when the, when the snow is great. And that's thankfully um, the position that we're in quite often, you know, fresh snow that comes in weekly and then gets groomed for the rest of the week and then gets refreshed with another storm. So, but yeah, I think I definitely, definitely noticed that out there and shaped my philosophy around that, even though it took a couple of years to get there. All right, Nick, let's talk about passes here. Two seasons ago, Snow Ridge joined the Indy Pass. Take us into that decision. Yeah, that was a, a very cool opportunity that came up. If I remember correctly, I think I reached out to Doug and uh, and asked about some information. Um, I knew there wasn't anything in the area at the time. Um, I think besides maybe Swain uh, was the only, and Greek Peak were the only New York ones. But yeah, I reached out and uh, he was excited to talk because I think it fit pretty well into the uh, geographically what, what they were trying to do and expand in New York, uh, which I think they've done a great job of in the last year here. But yeah, it was, it was one of those things where we were just looking for uh, new opportunities to get new skiers to the mountain um, and kind of just expand our footprint. And, you know, the more people who know about us, the better off we are. And that's how, always how I felt. And it's just another way to reach, uh, to reach new skiers and snowboarders. And, and that's kind of what drove that decision. You know, the day I was up there a couple months back, the two people in front of me were using an Indy Pass. I was using an Indy Pass and the person behind me was using an Indy Pass. Yeah. How, how many vis- Indy Pass visitors are you seeing? Um, we're seeing a decent amount. You know, I think it, it's grown. Uh, it grew over. I didn't don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but the numbers did grow this year over last year. And yeah, it's it's certainly a positive um, relationship that we have. So we're definitely going to keep that going as long as they'll have us. So yeah, it's you know, mostly on de- those powder days is when we're going to see those uh, those people come out, or you know, just nicer days in general. But yeah, it's been it's definitely been good, and and we're uh, excited to move forward to that and keep uh, seeing that grow. Do you have a sense, Nick, for how many Indy Pass users are discovering Snow Ridge through the Indy Pass? For sure. Um, only by word of mouth, really. Um, do we hear that? You know, they'll tell us, oh, this is my first time here. Or, you know, haven't been here before, that kind of thing. And my ticket desk attendants definitely have noticed that, that a lot of the Indy Pass people have not been been here and, and rode with us before. So that's definitely, that was one of our main goals. And I think it's working out that way for sure. So Snow Ridge has offered a really affordable season pass for the past few seasons. Uh, Talk about your 2022 to 23 offerings. What does it look like and what are the changes you're making for this year? Yeah, for sure. So we always, um, the last few years, we opened up our our season pass sales this time of year, uh, April 1st, really, uh, with a a pretty cheap spring sale, significantly cheaper than most areas. Um, It was actually kind of at the time when we started doing it four or five years ago, there was a lot of places were doing that, kind of just trying to capture market share early and get people committed, that kind of thing. And we continue to do it, even though other, some other places kind of got away from that model. And, and now pretty much everybody has, but we still wanted to offer 
a pretty reason some reasonable prices um, early in the spring for people who want to commit to next year. So our first pricing tier will be dropping here in the next few days. I believe a single single person membership is set at four hundred dollars with other other discounts for you know senior military and uh, students. So we think those prices are still um, incredibly competitive. They're far cheaper than a lot of our uh, our competitors are, and and we want to make sure that we can offer. A, uh, a reasonable price to get people out on the slopes if they're if they're going to be riding you know eight ten plus days out of a season. So uh, we start at that price. Um, that that runs until May first, um, and then we'll have those the next tier uh, next level pricing until October fifteenth, which is when our our full price uh, goes into effect for the rest of the season. So your pass holders, since you're an Indy Pass partner, they they are able to add on an Indy Pass at a discount. You also, Nick, are introducing quite a few reciprocal pass partnerships, meaning yes. that your pass holders will get free days of skiing at some other ski areas. So talk about those new partners and what those benefits are. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I'm really excited. We're, we're actually still in talks with a, a few other places to see if we can work something out. Just in the last couple of weeks, we've, uh, we've uh, partnered up with Hunt Hollow, um, out by Rochester, um, any basically our, our our pass holders will be able to go there uh, for a free lift ticket any weekday of the season. I'm really excited to be partnering with Platicill down in the Catskills. They're going to be getting uh, three lift tickets. Um, that'll be good anytime throughout the season as well. And uh, you know our our order partnership will be in place again once they figure out what they're going to do. Uh, for us. We look forward to getting back with Song and Lab again, which is typically like a group rate deal. And Swain is another one that we're bringing back again this year, which will be nice for the the Hunt Hollow area. We make a little trip out of it. That's a free lift ticket any time of the week as well. So yeah, we're and we're, and we're working on a handful more that I'm I'm hoping will come to fruition. But uh, even that alone, I think we've added added quite a bit of, of value to the pass um, just with that. So is there a you said three days at Platykill? Is there a certain number of days at Swain and Hunt Hollow that Snow Ridge Pass holders are eligible for? Nope, those are unlimited. Um, Hunt Hollow is just during the week because they are a semi-private club, so their uh, weekends are reserved for their own uh, members, and Swain is is unlimited as well. Uh, that's kind of amazing, Nick. So, so essentially, if you're buying a pass to Snow Ridge, you're also you get a Swain season pass as a bonus. Pretty much. I mean, it kind of works out that way. Um, geographically, we think that we're far enough apart where where it benefits both of us to to bring in our, our other, you know, respective uh, pass holders, maybe for a trip where they're going to spend a couple days or something like that. So yeah, so far, um, it's worked out for us. Uh, we don't see, you know, even then we don't see a ton of reciprocals coming in, but I'm hoping that's something that will change um, with the more offerings that we have. What are the Orta deals that you mentioned? Um, in the past, they varied. Most recently, uh, or, or I guess I should say, uh, previously, it was a uh, you would buy basically a uh, limited season pass that was good during the week, and you just got a deal on it. Um, it was okay, but it wasn't a fantastic deal. Uh, I think most recently it was twenty five percent off a lift ticket. Um, so we are actually we we're just in touch with them this past week, and they haven't put that deal together yet. So we are waiting to see what that will be. Okay, for the listeners who are not familiar, those three ski areas are Whiteface, Gore, and Bel Air, which are run by the state of New York, and we'll talk about those more in a minute. First, Nick, let's talk about Toggenberg. I know this is a place that is very special to you. As you mentioned, you grew up there. Your mother worked there for over 30 years. Toggenberg is now closed. So Peter Harris, who owns uh, Labrador and Song, purchased 
uh, last year purchased Hagenberg from the owner of Greek Peak, John Meyer. And uh, Mr. Harris then made the decision to shut down Toggenberg. It did not operate this this winter. And from what I understand, everything but the lifts have been stripped off of the mountain. What was your reaction to Toggenberg closing? Uh, yeah, it was uh, well heartbreaking to say, you know, to say the least, obviously. Um, I have a lot of fond, fond memories there. I literally grew up there. And after kind of, you know, being able to sit down and, and process a little bit, I was able to make you know, just make a little post online and the outpouring of people who, who had the same experience as I did, or, you know, similar feelings about it was kind of mind blowing. So that was really cool to see how much, just how much the place meant to so many more people than just myself. You can kind of get caught up in those moments and, and make it more about yourself sometimes, but it was really incredible to see how many people felt the same way about the place. And yeah, it, it was a, it was definitely heartbreaking. It was something, um, I think just being in the, you know, in and around that scene for so long and growing up, that you'd always kind of hear about being a possibility if it was ever to, you know, go into, uh, to Peter's hands. Um, but actually seeing it happen was, um, yeah, was definitely made it more real and, and was, uh, unfortunate for sure. You know, I interviewed Harris about this and, and the way he explained it, he thought that with the population decline in central New York, there weren't enough skiers there to support all three businesses. That was his rationalization for shutting it down. What's your reaction to that? Um, I mean, I, I can, I can understand it from a business standpoint. I can certainly understand why he did it. And um, unfortunately, I, I just don't agree with that. I think if anything, the, the skiing population in central New York has certainly increased. Um, I think it's something that all of us have seen over the last two years, um, particularly, you know, COVID driven. So I think that's kind of a hard one to rationalize now. And, you know, I know every, all three of those ski areas were making a profit. So um, it's not like, you know, one of those was, was losing out and not, not getting their fair share of the market. So um, I have a tough time rationalizing that one, but um, you know, that's, uh, that wasn't my call to make. So I imagine you're still pretty plugged in with the Toggenberg community, being that you grew up there and your mother still lives down in that area in Fabius. Now that we've gone through a winter without Toggenberg, how is the community coping with that? Um, I think they're uh, they're moving around. They're traveling more. Um, we've seen a number of them come up and visit us up here this winter, um, which is really nice to see. A lot of them had never been here before, so it was great to uh to get some new faces up in this way. Yeah, it's just, uh, I think that's kind of what everyone's dealing to. A lot of, I'm sure a lot of people have moved on to Song and Lab um, because, you know, they're the closest options now. And and if you have a family and stuff, that's uh, it's tough to go much farther than that. So I certainly understand that. But yeah, I think uh, people are just trying to find other other options um, for those people who aren't, aren't interested in going and, and skiing with them over at CNY Ski. Um, you know, I think they're just trying to branch out and and explore the other areas that really aren't that far away, which um, which they may have never looked at in the past. So it was, you know, it wasn't too long ago that the future of Toggenberg actually looked pretty pretty bright. So John Meyer bought Greek Peak, and he really has done a really good job there, and you know, mm-hmm. pumped a ton of money into it, over ten million dollars, and really fixed up what was a what was a declining ski area, frankly, that gets really good snow, but just was, was, you know, needed a lot of love. Sounds like Snow Ridge was when you took it over. So he bought it back in 2015, actually the same year that you bought Snow Ridge from mm-hmm. the family that had founded it back in the 1950s. And I went back and looked at old articles and they said, yes, this is the right steward for its future. He always said he was going to fix it up, never really followed through. And then he sold it to Harris. 
who closed it down right away. Did you know the sale was happening? Was there an opportunity for you to have bid on it? Uh, no, the only, uh, the only thing we had heard was obviously through the grapevine. Um, everything was, was kept quiet. There was no, uh, as far as I know, there was no, uh, public uh, sale option for anyone else, which I think is why a lot of people were mostly upset about it because no one else had the opportunity to buy it and keep it going. But yeah, I mean, uh, he he has done an incredible job down there at Greek Peak. There is no denying that um, the investment they've put in down there has been incredible. Um, I actually haven't been there to see it myself, um, but all the things I've heard and, and seen through, you know, the social medias and stuff like that, are it looks like a pretty, they've made it into a pretty impressive venue now. But yeah, it's no—it's certainly no mystery or, uh, or secret that Togenberg didn't get the love in those in those five or six years that he owned it, which unfortunately, you know, may lead to may have led to why uh, why it is in the state that it is now. So Meyer sold Togenberg to Harris for seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Is that a price that you would have considered purchasing the scary at? I think that's a steal. I don't know what was included in that deal. I don't know if the machinery was included. I don't know, you know, if the snow guns where they ended up going to all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I mean, that's that alone was uh, it was a pretty exceptional deal on that piece of property. So yeah, I mean, that that yeah, I can't say that I, I serve I personally would have been interested at this moment. There's a lot going on up here. But I think there are other people who uh, who certainly would have been interested, particularly at that price. So Toggenberg did not operate this winter for the first time since it opened in 1953. Uh, Harris has now listed the property for sale for $1.5 million. So that's double what he paid for it. And again, most of the equipment, the snowmaking, the grooming, um, mm-hmm. everything but the lodges, which are now shells, and the lifts, from my understanding, have been stripped. Yes. So what's your reaction to this piece of property going in the market for double what he paid for it last year? Um, well, uh, first off, in order to actually make it a functioning ski resort again, I think someone would probably have to put double that into it. You know, if you're talking purchasing purchasing it at 1.5, um, you're probably going to have to put close to that into it just in, in equipment and stuff to make it functioning again. So that would be obviously very difficult to do. You need someone with some pretty deep pockets. But if it was if it was to sell at that price, Peter gets, you know, he makes, it turns a quick profit and, and uh the whole deal was worth it for him. If it doesn't sell, then, you know, he sticks to his original plan and, and uh, can say, you know, it was up for sale, but no one wanted to buy it. So um, I think that was kind of the whole theory behind that. Yeah, he has said that he would consider reopening it again in the future. Any optimism that that will happen? I can't imagine so. Honestly, I think uh, with the voice of the Togberg community was loud and he did hear it. And that was his... Uh, way to try and appease them but um i i can't imagine that would ever happen in the future i i would love it i would absolutely i would love nothing more than see talking open again but maybe my pessimistic self is is not as convinced all right let's go back to orda here so again this is the olympic regional development authority for those who are not aware new york state did host two olympics one in 1980 and one uh before that i, I the the year is not off the top of my head but the state of the state of new york is is actually quite invested in snow sports and they put a lot of money into supporting the Olympic Regional Development Authority their annual their allocation proposed allocation from the governor for this coming year is 105 million dollars so that goes not just to support Whiteface Gore and Bel Air the three ski areas but also a number of Olympic facilities however which is great however um, and as a taxpayer of New York I I'm all about supporting 
snow sports and people getting outside. However, if you look around New York state, which has more ski areas than any other state in the country, around 50, most of them are like Snow Ridge. They're family owned. They're kind of small. They're in that, you know, less than a thousand feet of vertical range. And you're paying taxes to subsidize your competition, basically. (laughs) So I would love to get your thoughts, Nick, on this dynamic and how it feels as a small business owner having to compete against a state subsidized operation that doesn't have to make money and, and, and frankly, oftentimes don't. And, and Whiteface and Gore, by the way, are, for those who aren't familiar, enormous ski areas with incredible lift fleets that are very, very well-maintained and taken care of. So they have a lot of money to work with. But talk about that dynamic and, and just what it's like to be in your position. Yeah, that's a tough one to swallow for sure. It's always, obviously, it's always been an issue for as long as, as Orta has been running those resorts. But most being in this position now, it's, it's certainly brought it much more to light than it ever has before. You know, being able to go to some of the lift maintenance seminars that are put on during the summertime and stuff like that and talk to some of these, uh, some of the managers from those mountains, you know, and how their budgets just continually increase, even though you know, sales plummeted during a bad season or something like that is, is obviously pretty frustrating to listen to when, you know, we're literally fighting, fighting just to, you know, have a livelihood our first five years. So yeah, that was definitely a tough one to swallow and kind of made me a little more uh, pained by the whole situation. But, um, but yeah, it's tough. And, and like you said, knowing that we're putting in, you know, we're paying our taxes, just like, you know, any other any other business does in the state, but having to compete against those guys who, you know, they're on a different level for sure. Those mountains are huge and, and we are not, but you know, skiers have to ski somewhere. And, and when you're, when you're going up against guys who are, who have, you know, multiple high speed lifts and detachables and snowmaking systems that are worth more than, you know, 20 of, of us put together (laughs) alone is, uh, is pretty tough to, to compete with, even if they're, you know, hours away. So the, the, your state ski association, the ski areas of New York, was able to broker a deal with the state a few years ago. And, and I thought this was a really good example of, of how the state could better support small ski areas. But essentially what they did is they, they, the state allocated $5 million and each participating ski area received $300,000 to upgrade to energy efficient snowmaking, which... I know we were just talking about how expensive snowmaking is and, and how that's your long-term goal. Uh, Scott Brandy, the president of Ski New York, has told me that he's trying to, to get the state to invest an additional $10 million into that program. Thoughts just on, I guess, A, were you able to participate in that last program? And, and B, do you, do you like these programs as a way to, to even the playing field a little bit? And and, and and help small ski areas who have to compete against these state subsidized giants. Yeah, I think that program was absolutely fantastic. Um, unfortunately, when it came out, we were in those first five years when we couldn't, you know, buy a toothbrush. Right. Um, so, so even it's not like they were giving them away. You still had to make an investment yourself um, in order to get that, you know, that grant money, which we were just weren't able to do, uh, which was unfortunate at the time that would have helped a lot. But now we are in a position where that would be incredibly beneficial for us, particularly trying to build out our snowmaking operations a little bit more, make those more efficient and be able to take advantage of, of what resources we do have to the fullest extent. That would be an absolutely incredible program to be able to participate in. So I, I certainly hope that that one comes to fruition again and that other similar ones uh, may be able to happen in the future. Is there an argument to be made, Nick, for the state making a similar investment into more into more modern chairlifts because I have to imagine that 
these old hall lifts take more energy to run than maybe a modern lift. And, and that, that's just an assumption. I, I frankly have no idea what I'm talking about, but I'm just <laughs> assuming everything new is a little bit more energy efficient. But if you look around New York State, there's, there's only seven ski areas that have high speed lifts. You have the Orta areas, you have Hunter, you have which Vale owns. You have Wyndham, which is very well capitalized. You have Holiday Valley, Bristol. Oh, and, and also Halamont, the, the private area. So you, you have very few of these 50 ski areas. Most of them are running like yours, 50, 60-year-old haul double lifts. Is there an opportunity here to, to say, hey, you know, we'll help help you put in a more modern lift so you can put some of these older ones, these what I imagine are less energy efficient ones, out to pasture? Yeah, that would, um, that would change the operations for so many ski areas like ours um, significantly. I mean, that would be like getting a get out of jail free card, which would be absolutely amazing. Um, this, uh, the, the amount of investment involved in that would be far more substantial than a snowmaking improvement or program would be. So that would be, I, I would think much harder to be able to get passed and get financed. But if it did ever happen, I mean, it would just be an absolutely incredible opportunity for these uh, family owned ski areas to sort of bring them into the, into the modern day when when stuff like that for us and other ski areas is, like I said previously, just a pie in the sky idea that just seems like a dream that would be really nice to have. But in the near future, it would be nearly impossible for us to ever make improvements like that and, and get a new lift that, you know, costs more than this place is worth, to be completely honest. Yeah. So so you, you look at your your new partner, Platykill, and Lazo Vete, who owns the ski area with his wife, Danielle, he's been very outspoken critic of Orta for a long time. And he's proposed over the years a number of different ways that New York State could help family-owned ski areas be a little more competitive. And he's he's in a really tough spot because Platykill is, not only is it very close to Bel Air, but it's past Bel Air and it's down some, frankly, unimproved roads. They, they might even be dirt roads. I've never yeah. been back there in the summer. <laughs> I've only been back there in the winter and they're always covered in snow. Yeah, you have, to, you have to drive past Bel Air like a half hour to get to Platykill. So so he's had a lot of ideas. Do you have any yourself of just other things that the state could do to make it maybe a little more uh, competitive or fair? Yeah, I mean, those programs, I think, would be the most realistic way for a lot of us to take advantage of um, of our taxpayer dollars and be able to get the help that we need in order to to stay relevant and competitive. Other little simple things would be like our, you know, our season pass uh, benefits program that we have with them. You know, rather than just giving a little, a little bite, you know, maybe you can can really give us a huge incentive for these people to buy our season pass. You know, if if we were able to offer, you know, a number of, you know, a handful of free lift tickets a year or something like that, I think that alone is going to be such a driver of our season pass sales that it would send them through the roof. So when in reality, it's it's really not costing them anything because, you know, those our, our pass holders may not even go there during a winter. But if, if now they're given lift tickets to do so, they're going to go there, they're going to get lodging, they're going to eat food, they're going to uh, spend their money in the gift shop and all that kind of stuff. So I think that would be the easiest, quickest way to uh, to give all of us a hand by, you know, offering our season pass holders some special incentive to come and ride with you. That's a little more than just 25% off or, or uh, you know, a cheaper weekday season pass option or something like that. So that would certainly be the, the first one that I'd love to see happen. All right, Nick. Well, it sounds like you're doing a lot right and really turning the place around and really crafting it into 
into a ski area that we'll be able to enjoy for many, many generations, hopefully to come. So I really look forward to watching the evolution. And, and luckily, unlike a lot of the folks that I have on my podcast, I can pop up and visit Snow Ridge pretty much any time <laughs> that I'm willing to get up early enough to do it. So I look forward to seeing you again next year. Hopefully this time you won't be uh, elbow deep in a snow gun and we can take a few turns together. That would be fantastic. I'd love to have you up again and, and get out and make some runs. That would be great. That's Nick Murr, co-owner and general manager of Snow Ridge, New York. Nick, I love that. Thank you so much. Those of you catching the pod on your streaming services, I do appreciate that. But there is a whole Storm Skiing Journal article that accompanies this podcast and breaks down why Nick and people like him are the future of independent ski areas. If you don't believe he's going to make this thing work after listening to that, we just heard two different conversations. Thank you all very much for listening. Coming up next, I've got a headliner, Big Sky CEO Taylor Middleton. After that, coming at you with Summit Esnaqualmie, Washington, Ragged Mountain, New Hampshire, Arapahoe Basin, Colorado, and I'm just announcing this one today, Indie Pass founder Doug Fish returns to the podcast. Remember to visit stormskiing.com and sign up for the Storm Skiing newsletter. You can also follow the storm on Instagram or Twitter at Storm Ski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I'll talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.